Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. So thanks everyone for coming along. Thanks for joining us. Um, thank you, Tim. Thank you to ACME for letting me get my Parkinson on. And uh, thanks for hosting what promises to be, I, I assure you, a totally badass evening. I never know how to say ass, because mm. that's not comfortable, but ass, ass isn't either. So I'll, f- <laughs> I'll flip, shall we? And just kind of like go Anglo-American at different points. Um, So, twerking to terrorism, that was the unofficial subtitle for uh, tonight's tonight's talk. So, as as Tim mentioned, I've been asked to host and to say a few words because I recently finished a PhD which was looking at the history of music videos and their evolution after YouTube. And one of the things that struck me in the hard slog of four years of watching YouTube music videos for money um, (laughs) uh, was that... They uh, managed to be so many different things all at the same time. They are wonderful and fun and funny and exciting and sexy, but they are also like dumb, like real dumb and banal and repetitive and predictable and um, boring and sometimes really racist and sometimes really sexist. They are a kind of like microcosm of popular culture. They are everything that is wonderful and terrible about popular culture whittled down and filtered down into this brief, condensed, tight, three-minute nugget. They are the kind of like shiny turds of popular culture, which is why I love them so much. (laughs) So tonight I'm joined by a couple of other speakers, Amy Gray and Mel Campbell, and I think the way we'll run tonight is that we'll each show some clips um, and make a few observations about them and then have a general conversation and Q&A at the end. And I think between, uh, between Amy, Mel and myself, we will cover the full range of bad girls. We'll look at uh, girls behaving badly and the all-too-familiar career trajectory of a uh, young pop star to... Like, I don't really know the phrase to describe Miley Cyrus. It's not like porn star. I mean, even though that fits, that would make a nice seg, but it's like... Semi-porn. Yeah, oh, yeah semi-porn, porn light. Um, or like, it's like country, shrieky, licky, the weird tongue thing. Country, shrieky, licky, banshee, something. Concrete, reasonable, yeah. gyrating. yeah. That's achy, breaky. Yeah, yeah achy, breaky. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, and it's a career trajectory that often happens by way of a really weird, dubious appropriation, often of edgier cultures. We will look at uh, badass or bad ass girls um, whose music videos would be described as controversial and shocking and explicit for entirely different reasons because they're really violent, they're really political and they tackle complex kind of human rights issues head on in a difficult um, way. 
and we will look at bad taste girls and why it is that uh, Australian music videos do it so badly so often. <laughs> I might let Amy Gray take the floor to begin with. So Amy is a, an author and a writer. You can uh, read her everywhere, ABC and on her blog in particular, The Pesky Feminist. Amy, do you want to mm. launch? kind of need to apologise to everyone because when we started discussing this um, panel back in July, I, I pointed Tim, who has never heard of 212 by Azalea Banks and more's the pity, um, I pointed him towards Miley Cyrus's just discovered love of twerking and said, hey, wouldn't this be fun to discuss? And now it's kind of blown up in my face. Um, <clears throat> we were already kind of clinging to a board floating amidst a crap crusted tide of twerking and Miley and I'm really, really sorry. No idea that this shit would just go off so tap and flood the media landscape with rubber outfits, giant plush bears and novelty sized foam hands that doubled as masturbation aids. But here we are. Thank you for boarding the Bad Girls Express and keep your trace in the upright uh, position as I discuss not only Miley but also Azalea Banks and consider their use of sexuality and cultural appropriation in their work. So cultural appropriation, I, I know what you're thinking, isn't it great that a white woman's talking about it uh, because there's a valued <laughs> perspective we haven't heard. Um, <laughs> So, and <laughs> sorry again, um, uh, my heritage is you know, best described as Anglo-Celtic mongrel and um, I'm sure you're keen to hear my biting analysis on the topic. But, but cultural appropriation is actually a very, very dominant theme within music and very specifically um, music videos. Um, at best, it can be that kind of insufferable kind of white knighting from Peter Gabriel and Paul Simon, um, who at least, you know, introduced the world to new independent artists. And at worst, it's what I like to call the gaga zone. So where cultures and subcultures are appropriated and repackaged as what is meant to be a completely unique um, an individual piece of work, whereas it's been cobbled together from a Frankenstein mishmash of minority groups. All right, so Margaret Cho categorised this and Stefani's use of the LAMB dancers, so her Harajuku girls, as a minstrel show that uh, perpetuated ethnic stereotypes about Asian women. And so the backup dancers uh, who hooked into uh, Stefani's Harajuku kind of kawaii aesthetic were referred to as her imaginary friends. So they weren't really real. They had no real backstory. They weren't given, they were given assumed names. There was nothing to really wonder about them other than their ability to look kawaii or what the Japanese call um, cute. And, you know, they're just props selected for their ethnicity in order to emulate a culture of which Stefani actually had very little understanding, but just thought looked cool. So it's kind of similar to that horrifically termed yellow fever where men try and date Asian women to, you know, in the mistaken belief that their ethnicity makes them inherently submissive or, or feminine. But it's wrought into this kind of coutured choreography of ignorance and kind of compulsive cultural um, acquisition. And it should be noted that, you know, once Gwen Stefani was kind of tired of the whole LAMB thing, you know, she hasn't brought these women back into the scene and they haven't kind of profited from it in any meaningful sense. And this brings us to Miley, obviously. <clears throat> so Cyrus has actually deliberately appropriated black culture when she was developing her album and actually 
outright asked producers to give her a black sound. And so songwriters Rock City found, you know, back of the couch, a song that Rihanna had um, rejected. And that's when we have We Won't Stop. And um, it's nice that Rihanna gave her that because Rihanna's currently busy at the moment getting all of Thailand arrested one Instagram at, the t- at a time. I don't know if anyone else has seen that. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but Miley loves her some twerking. She worked up from twerking into, you know, getting Rock City and um, Will I Made It um, to work on the album. But a, it, a lot of this has been started with her adoption of the twerking dance style. So that's... Um, it ostensibly starts back in West Africa, but has kind of morphed into popular culture, um, probably around New Orleans, they think, but very much south of um, America. Uh, it's a mainstay of hip-hop, it's a mainstay of strip clubs, and you know, but also you know, lots of music videos where women are dancing for the men. And that's a really important distinction that we're going to come back to in a tick. But twerking is actually quite a mainstay of what we call ratchet culture, and that's ratchet culture is actually very gender, class, and race specific, in that it's you know lower socioeconomic African American women, and it's something that's actually increasingly getting co-opted by Caucasian women. So, thinking back to Sex in the City, uh, Carrie Bradshaw used to go ghetto, um, but today Miley goes ratchet. So, but it's the same thing. You borrow from black culture as a means to display some sort of authenticity. Um, but more often, Ratchet's used as some sort of class tourism where you can pretend to be poor and go slumming, safe in the knowledge that you can return to your privilege in the next morning. And actually, that's something that was actually really well picked up by Jarvis Cocker in the song Common People, where it's just, if you call your dad, he could stop it all. It's Exactly the same with Miley. She can stop this anytime she wants, but it's giving her authenticity, it's giving her credibility, and she doesn't actually have to do much original work to develop this as a persona because she can just take it from elsewhere. Um, but, you know, when you're appropriating ratchet culture, you're actually mixing gender and race into the mix as well. And this is a really important point about cultural appropriation. So often it's about stealing um, celebration and identity wrought from the grim expectation and experience of others. So whether it's for fun or credibility or profit, the majority of cases cultural appropriation involves theft of another culture's defiance against the privilege under which they suffer. So also they don't get the same money as a white woman who's selling, stealing their moves and paying them so she can stick her face in their asses. So on that point, um, in this segment from We Can't Stop because God knows I can't stop watching it. Miley um, is doing some really stock preparation of cultural appropriation here. And if we just have a look at it, um, she dresses in the cultural garb that's taken directly from ratchet culture. So check out how she's accessorised, check out her nails and all that sort of thing. These are all items that are you know, identified with ratchet culture and more broadly African-American culture. So the nails and jewellery, there's that kind of gaudy uh, glitz, which are often shown. You will often find, especially in hip-hop and urban culture, a lot of African-Americans will go for uh, displays of wealth. And the reason behind that is generally if they show that they have money by having the big gold chains or the, the gold grills or the expensive manicures, they're actually giving a form of insurance when they're going out to different shops where they're normally harassed out of the store 
uh, because it's thought that they don't have money because they're black. Um, but when they have that instantly identifiable symbols of wealth, then they're given a little bit more leeway. And what Miley's doing is she's just grabbing it for herself, not as an insurance against being harassed in stores based on her ethnicity because she grew up wealthy. She's doing it because it looks cool. And the other thing is, I don't know if anyone noticed, did you see her cut off the ankle monitor? So that was the very first thing that she did. Now, she has not been charged or, or jailed or ever been under Music house Music videos lie to us? No! <laughs> if it was Lindsay Lohan on the other No, no, I, if it was Paris, it was Paris. Paris. I saw Paris's recent video, actually. That was terrible. Um, <laughs> We'll talk about that another time. But, you know, but that's another co-opting of you know, the broader um, aspects of African-American culture where you know, rates of incarceration and punishment are higher than for, you know, for white people. So, but when it comes to the participants in the videos, all too often it actually reduces those who originally had stood defiantly in the face of privilege with kind of ratchet culture, with making do and with making it something that they found aesthetically pleasing. And it reduces them to be props for the entertainment and profit of others. So, okay, I'm sorry, this is going to be the last time I make you watch it. But in this little snippet from We Can't Stop, the twerkers are literally only there to lend credibility to Cyrus's performance. But if you watch the entire, you know, music video, and I... And I Okay, I admit it, I do every couple of days. Um, you'll, you'll actually note that the African-American women or the, you know, the Baker crew are only there in the dance shots where they're meant to be specifically twerking. They're not present in any of the social shots where Miley's dancing and partying with her friends who are meant to be, obviously her friends are her peers and equals. And that's because the dancers are props. They aid her performance which leads to a, a popularity and profit. Now, this involves a, a notion that we call recuperation, which is where radical acts are diluted from their original message and they're commoditized to become innocuous. And, yeah, if you have a look, I mean, like, you know, we make jokes about twerking. Everyone makes jokes about twerking. I mean, I think David Koch has actually made a joke about twerking. And it's never, whilst twerking was never inherently political, it has been reduced to a kind of funny craze and punchline. So... You know, when Pive Climber twerks, you know the goddamn ship has motherfucking sailed. But the one positive I will give for Miley is that she is hypersexual. And though I know that we get told often that hypersexuality is actually meant to be a bit of a moral panic, I actually think it's really interesting from her perspective because um, her displays are not for male enjoyment. It's all very much, you know, for, for her to be uh, presenting herself for male sexual enjoyment to court their, their attraction and their desire, uh, she'd be a bit more doe-eyed and a little bit less pashing doppelganger dolls in the pool. But, um, in fact, what she does is she, she shows a kind of aggressive sexuality in that it subverts the expectations we have for women in music videos. So she's not telling you that she's down to clown and she wants to fuck you. She's telling you... I just enjoy fucking. And there's actually a really interesting kind of chasm of, you know, there's a bit of a difference there. But on to my favourite, Azalea Banks, who uh, came on to and then just smashed the scene with 212, is a really sexually and professionally aggressive uh, performer who just put the competition on guard from the get-go. And she's, she's got a lot of tales to share that are strangely interesting comparison points for what's happening with Miley. So like Cyrus, Azalea Banks is hypersexual. 
Hers is actually slightly different in that she's mocking towards male sexuality or male sexual drive. Um, and she's, but she will state that she's openly looking for sexual pleasure from, not really giving to, but she's looking for sexual pleasure from men and women. Um, and she's not about, she's not above, you know, she doesn't want to use euphemism. She's just straight in there. That cunt's getting eaten. <laughs> so. Quote, unquote. Quote, unquote. <laughs> I love that I just got paid money to say that to a group of people. Anyway, but. Azalea Banks has actually faced quite a few accusations of cultural appropriation herself and, um, and of, you know, co-opting a community for her own profit. And, but for this time, it was for C-Punk. And does everyone know what C-Punk is? It's kind of like 90s electronica that incorporates a, a lo-fi marine aesthetic with raver <laughs> sensibility and, and theatrics. I can't believe you got paid to say that sentence. I know. Isn't it fantastic? <laughs> I love it. But it's come about through kind of downloads, Tumblr, underground parties, all that kind of stuff. And I would share a clip with you because I have actually watched quite a bit of it, but it's the effect of watching seed punk is kind of like those early 80s Japanese film clips where you get an epileptic fit and you're just sort of sitting there having a bit of an attack and, and drooling, which is actually not unlike listening to me talk right now. But... So Azalea released this album called Fantasy, which was S-E-A at the end because lol. And, um, <laughs> and she, had, like, she had this one song, um, Aqua Babe, that you know, had a lot of the kind of sound of C-Punk. And that got people pissed to, to begin with. But then a couple of months later, she got um, uh, Fafi, who's a contemporary of Banksy um, in terms of street art um, on the European scene, if you follow that. Um, and she got Fafi to create the film clip for Atlantis. And it's, um, the resulting you know, video incorporated all the visual elements of C-Punk, and, uh, but to a very diluted degree, the sound. And it actually sent all these you know, fans and devotees of C-Punk into the most potent form of outrage of all, which is online criticism. Uh, so, I mean... That actually generated a huge amount of outrage because at the same time, <coughs> Rihanna just popped up, I think it was on um, Saturday Night Live, and danced in front of a blue screen um, to see punk imagery as well, and people just lost their shit. Um, now, it's, in a good it, way or bad way? I no, really, it. really bad way. Everyone was really, really annoyed. <laughs> and it's interesting because the conversation was actually a different because C-Punk is nominally a kind of white subculture. So they can't sort of talk about um, race appropriation or cultural appropriation from that area. But what they did actually start bringing up was the whole idea of recuperation. So Zombell, who is a noted C-punk performer, and I don't blame you if you're not going to go look her up on YouTube, um, she complained on Twitter, and I'm not going to yell, even though this is all in upper caps, Um, She complained on Twitter, the longer we're online, the more susceptible artists are to the rich poaching our culture and ideas as well ideals used as marketing ploys. She's a gifted communicator, you can see that. (laughs) But, and actually there's some really interesting points in that because that does happen, but it's interesting to sort of think about how much profit are you actually going to turn from an uber niche electronica form of aesthetic and um, music. The music wasn't even on style, but, you know, they're in there. But anyway, 
But this is where kind of culture and ownership gets really tricky and interesting because sea punk in itself is a, an appropriation of 90s music, dance, dress and aesthetic. So then where, where do we draw the line? Is it wrong to appropriate a reappropriation? Then, after that, Azalea and Gaga got into a shit fight over who could be a sea punk um, mermaid. <laughs> you would think I was making that up, but no. Okay. But this is what we're dealing with. So, it's, you know, it's beginning to feel like a goddamn, t- you know, Tadakan of pissy ownership. So... <laughs> I like saying to Duncan. I have it in my KPIs. Um, but the real question is, is all cultural appropriation bad? And yes, if we follow the belief that co-opting a culture exploits and dilutes that culture for profit, then yep, it's incredibly bad practice. But there are occasions where the forays into other cultures can you know, benefit everyone. So, and I was thinking about this today where I was trying to think of something that started that was hyper-local still had international fans and followers and uptake but wasn't a cultural appropriation and the only thing I could actually think of was 8-bit music. So that started in Japan and um, kind of really popular in the 80s but I still listen to it now. Um, And it's still actually occurring internationally but it's also been shared internationally and rather than someone saying doing a kind of gaga zone and saying, I have created this new thing and I'm presenting it as my own work, it's more a collaborative um, kind of effort rather than an exploitation. And it works even better when, um, the, you know, when it ushers in the culture it seeks to work with and acts as an equal participant. So Paul Simon's Gracelands may have been insufferable. I don't know if you've noticed that there's a theme there that I'm going to try and... It's not insufferable down. at all. How oh, oh, dare you? Did you dislike Peter Gabriel as well? He's got his moments. <laughs> Just give me his picture. Yeah. I'm not talking to either of them. But, you know, so my hatred of their work aside... Um, <laughs> How's that possible? So anyway, another conversation. <laughs> it's another panel session. Um, both did actually ensure that their work was on an equal footing with the artists that they collaborated with. So... Lady Smith's Black Mambazo emerged as indepa- uh, independent artists with careers of their own. And, you know, Peter Gabriel ushered in what is now known as world music, promoting and producing and creating performance spaces for musicians around the world. So, from that perspective, that actually works really well. But when you think, go back to Azalea Banks, she's actually had some very interesting things to say about cultural appropriation on Twitter because Twitter is our new resource and academic um, depository. And Banks says that black culture is a modified appropriation of white American culture, which is in itself an appropriation of white English culture, and which is an incredibly nutbags argument when you dig into it with any soft dent, let alone completely. But there's a really interesting notion in there that, that goes to the elastic nature of culture, because it removes that notion of ownership instead of, you know, and it starts conferring transient popularity rather than distinct ownership and territoriality. But putting her tweeted um, opinions aside, where Banks differs from Cyrus again, is that there's at least some sort of long-term participation and collaboration between Banks and the culture. And though she hasn't been, she's not as much of a C-punk follower as, say, for example, MIA is, 
Banks has been a long-time fan. And um, this is, once again, all from Twitter. Little Internet, another noted um, C-Punk performer, said during the whole brouhaha where everyone was hating on Azalea Banks. Once again, this is all in uppercase. I don't know if this is specifically a C-Punk thing or if it's just a Twitter <laughs> thing. But he hashtagged every second word. It was fantastic. Um, Little Internet, C-Punk performer, said, Kids, C-Punk is safe. Culture is free for everyone to share. Azalea Banks has long been into that style for a long time. Rihanna, however, so you know, no one likes Rihanna. <laughs> Most of all, Thailand. Um, but this, another kind of C-Punk performer, Jerome Lol, that's his name, Jerome Lol. He, he weighed in as well and he was actually, he kind of conferred and expanded upon this whole notion of the elastic nature and he just sort of said, no one, know, no one owns the 90s. And the internet is the culture's playground and it's the best. Stay posy. Which um, <laughs> I didn't need to add that. I could have just edited that out, but man, it's great. So um, initial kind of shit fit aside, eventually the people in, you know, who were the main players in C-Punk didn't mind Banks Foray into their kind of culture because they began to sort of see that a, she did have some time working with them or working with C-Punk collaborators, um, but also she had, you know, she had that history in the movement, but also they had a completely different idea of what cultural appropriation was for them. Their main concern was actually that of recuperation or commodification rather than someone developing on their theme. So, and that's the interesting point because Cyrus was born into wealth and privileged connections. I mean, she was, you know, Billy Ray Cyrus is her father, who obviously had a hell of a lot of money already for being achy and breaky. And then, you know, putting her through the whole Disney machine, she, you know, they, she, she, she wasn't in want of, you know, short change. Whereas, you know, Azalea Banks, she grew up poor. Her dad died when she was two. She was looking for sugar daddies when she was 16. She was stripping, you know, she was, you know, until, and by her own admission, she only started making money about a year into her recording career. So she reaches out to those cultures as an equal participant, often in terms of race, but generally in terms of culture because she grew up in Harlem and she started, you know, from the ground up with a lot of the performers. So, and I think that that's where the crucial difference is here when it comes to kind of cultural appropriation. That engagement and the equal footing with the culture itself lends to cultural sharing and exchange rather than that disinterested and uh, profitable recuperation. And it's that also that realisation that more often than not, you're a guest rather than an accepted member of the culture. So, for example, Miley Cyrus often talks about bitches being her homies. And Kanye West is her homie, apparently, as well. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, which is nice. I thought that was great. Um, but the hook here is that rather than enforcing those strict culture lines, where the entrance is you know, apparently highly protected, there is a lot of leeway, it seems, for offering up aspects of the culture for exploration and for development. This is really actually fabulously underscored um, when someone criticised Azalea Banks for appropriating bull culture. I don't know if anyone knows about bull culture. It was documented in um, Paris is Burning, so it's catwalking and voguing um, and as you know, kind of a competitive kind of thing that's done in the lesbian, gay, bi and trans community in the US. So the person received the ultimate smackdown and just to set it up, the first voice you hear is going to be someone trying to breathily, you know, smack down 
um, Azalea, and then receiving the ultimate smackdown from his other participants. Um, I want to talk about uh, Bad Girls, literally MIA's Bad Girls and some other of her work. Um, I'm sure you're all very familiar with her, but to give you just a teensy bit of context, um, MIA is obviously a stage name for Maya Aral Pragasam, and I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly because I pronounce everything incorrectly. Um, and she is a Sri Lankan Tamil. She grew up in Sri Lanka. Her father, a Tamil, was uh, politically active. He wasn't a Tamil, Tamil tiger, but he was um, closely, very politically active in a student group that was closely associated with the Tamil tigers. And as I'm sure you're all aware, the Tamil tigers were a, a militant separatist organisation in northern Sri Lanka who were engaged in... Uh, a difficult and bloody and very long-winded uh, guerrilla war and then civil war that ran from... Sorry, like, already the room is like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> How did we get from Miley? <laughs> anyway, continuing with the, with the, with the uh, civil war. Um, yes, a long and bloody and shitty civil war that ran from about the late 1970s until very recently. It's extremely raw and escalated in a really violent fashion in the um, mid-2000s. So MIA grew up in Sri Lanka uh, as a Tamil um, in the midst of a civil war with a politically active father and other family members as well. And then uh, migrated to the UK, to London, as a refugee, as an 11-year-old. And all of those myriad outsider experiences of growing up in a developing nation of experiencing civil war, of ethnic persecution, of uh, human rights abuses and being a refugee, being a migrant, being Asian in the UK, living in London council estates, um, all of these factors obviously shape the kind of person that she is, without a doubt, and they shape the kind of persona that she has created for herself. And she, and you can see in this uh, a little bit here in, the, in that slide. She routinely like remixes and appropriates and references this cultural background of hers. It's her background. But she also routinely references, appropriates and remixes other experiences of otherness, other experiences of growing up in developing nations, of civil war, of ethnic persecution and so on. So I think from memory <clears throat> we've had... She's kind of done her MIA thing for Brazilians, Palestinians, Liberians, um, for uh, new African migrants in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, for even for Aboriginal, kind of remote Aboriginal communities in Australia. She spreads it wide. Um, and, okay, so before I get too much into it, I might show a couple um, of clips I want to start with um, a few excerpts from Born Free, uh, from the music video for Born Free, which is from 2010, which is an epic nine-minute ethnic cleansing parable that was produced without the knowledge of her label, apparently, so she says, um, and it was released and subsequently banned on a whole bunch of uh, video aggregates like YouTube and the like, and... Uh, when we see the excerpts that we'll show, you can see why, but, you know, ethnic cleansing parable is probably 
a giveaway. Um, in the video, gingers, red-headed people stand in for kind of any number of other minority groups. We have time and questions. Um, but I next want to show a couple, uh, a, a clip from Bad Girls. Um, and in Bad Girls, I'm sure you've all seen it a million times. I have seen it a million times. I never tire of this clip. Um, and in it, MIA does what she does so well, but this time for kind of the cause of Arabic women and in particular women's rights in Saudi Arabia and very explicitly the women's right to drive movement in Saudi Arabia where women are, of course, not allowed to drive. I will wax lyrical about those music videos if you want me to in the Q&A or after privately over a beer um, because I will talk non-stop about them. But um, one point I want to make before moving on and showing the last little clip is that Whatever the global references and the kind of global touchstones in those clips, they are totally made for Western audiences, for Western eyes. Um, so I want to end by showing uh, a music video clip that was, was made by Arabs and for Arab audiences. Um, I can't pronounce the name of the song. I won't try. Um, but I will give you a little bit of background. So... Uh, in case you're not aware, music videos are totally ubiquitous in the Arab media sphere. They're everywhere. Um, Arab satellite television is totally dominated by music video, uh, music videos, and, and music television. Uh, so um, the clip that I'm going to show is for uh, an, an Iraqi pop star called Shatha Hassoun, which again I'm hoping, hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Um, the song is about a love affair between a US soldier and a woman, i.e. the singer, um, and it's set against the backdrop of the US-led occupation and invasion of Iraq. Uh, the, the song is full of all these double entendre lyrics that um, link a kind of fractious, uh, heated romantic relationship with the relationship between these two countries. So it's lots of like... Uh, betrayal and you done me wrong and uh, I can't trust you and broken promises and you say you'll do these things but you never do, right? So all these double entendre lyrics. Um, and the clip makes that really, uh, really explicit. So that is, um, it is in my opinion, a silly music video. It's not a particularly, it's not a particularly good music video. I, I showed you the least silly bit of it. There's an ex... <laughs> extended sequence where there's lots of chains because it's like unchain my heart, unchain my country. It's really subtle like that. Um, and there's lots of like chain, chain dancing but I chose, not to, I chose not to include that. I chose to include the bedroom scene. Um, so it is a political clip undoubtedly and that's the most political bit there where you see all the kind of footage of, of um, news footage of the war in the bedroom as it were. Um, so it is political, it's undoubtedly, but it is also much more, there's much more in that clip of pouting, romancing, dancing, prancing, looking sexy, rolling around on beds, um, the usual music video suspects. Uh, and in interviews, in the kind of controversy that followed that clip when it circulated on this really kind of prolific Arab mediascape, that um, in interviews, Shatha, um, who's very articulate, uh, and a fox, in case you didn't pick up on that. Um, 
<laughs> um, she totally downplays the political message in the, in the music video and she says, and I'm going to quote her here, that my Iraqi nationality embroiled me in political polemics that bear no connection to me. I'm not the first artist to represent a clip whose axis is a love affair with a soldier. And in saying that, uh, she does what popular culture does all the time, which is, she said, you decide. You come to this with your baggage and your weird shit and you make a call about it. It's up to you. Um, so if you'll permit me to be uh, a little bit nerdy here, for cultural studies scholars like myself, which is what I moonlight as when I can get the sessional work to do so, um, <laughs> what is so great and so fucking endlessly fascinating about popular culture is its capacity to, um, to, be, to hold space for all these different and sometimes radically different meanings, to be able to be so many different things at the same time to different people. And that clip in particular got held up by critics as being either totally pro-Iraq and anti-US and therefore wonderful, or vice versa, right? It, it, it could occupy completely different polar extremes in the opinion sphere, in the, in the kind of conversations that ensued. So for me, music videos and popular culture at large is kind of like the Trojan horse of progressive politics. Um, so MIA adopts this persona of the militant rebel, the uh, guerrilla activist. She puts on this performance. But in doing so, all she really does is make explicit what popular culture, or at least the very best kinds of popular culture, does all the time, every day, anyway, which is be engaged in a slow gradual, uh, dogged uh, attack on the status quo. So that's me done. <laughs> and for what I know is going to be an extremely silly and very fun <laughs> end to this evening's talks, I'd like to um, give the floor to Mel Campbell. Um, Mel uh, is a prolific and wonderful, funny writer. She writes about all aspects of popular culture and in so many different publications I couldn't possibly list them all. But the writing that she does that I like best because it's an interest I share is on taste and fashion culture. And she, a couple of months ago, earlier this year, published her first book, Out of Shape, which was debunking many of the popular myths about fashion and fit. And I'm going to hand it over to you, Mel, to lighten the, the mood of the room a little bit since I killed it. Yeah, thanks, Maura. You're right. Um, okay, so I've taken the idea of bad girls to be um, Australian girls are bad, like pop, Australian pop music. When you think about it in context, like, it's so easy, especially for cultural studies, to look at, at the best of culture, like Maura was just saying, but what about the worst of culture, which is what we so often are surrounded by? And... When you look at Australian music videos, you can't help thinking that in all but an absolute minority of cases, we fall so short. You know, our videos seem embarrassing because we can see what Australian pop stars are trying to achieve and they fall really short. So I, I can think of no better way to uh, demonstrate this than with um, Get 'em Girl. So this is... The commodity <laughs> fetishism is the... 
is the subject of, of Get 'em Girls um, by Jessica. It's Malboy. Did we decide that? Yes, Jessica Malboy um, featuring Snoop Dogg. Although, like. Snoopzilla. Can we really feature him when he basically just... He I think phoned he, that in. Yeah. I, I think he faxed it in. Like, <laughs> and the worst thing about that video is that it's directed by Hype Williams, who's one of the greatest hip-hop music video directors of all time, but basically it's just the most boring music video ever. Um, it came out in, in 2011, that song. Uh, what I find fascinating about it is that we're so used to the commodity fetishism of a lot of hip-hop culture in particular, like the, the brand names. I mean, she cites, you know, all the usual shoe, you know, designers that everyone goes into. Um, but for some reason, she's invented this category of shoes named Get 'em Girls. Um, I mean, like, I used to have this pair of white pointy stilettos that I referred to as my white pointers, but that's it's a totally different topic. But um, uh, it failed to be both glamorous and to, to be original. It came across as, like, an embarrassing copy of another kind of culture. So it raises the question of cultural cringe and about how Australia doesn't feel like it has its own kind of pop culture. I mean, we do. We've got pop music, but it, it's what we think of as being indie music. That's where all the really innovative music video stuff is happening. It's in what we would call, uh, look, to be generous, Triple J. Um, but basically, it's, it's the... Uh, like, Kimbra is maybe the most mainstream Australian pop star. She's not even Australian, she's New Zealandish, but... Um, <laughs> That's where the innovation is happening. But when we think of the mainstream um, pop star, that's, that's where the worst stuff is happening. And I was thinking about when it began. Um, obviously, pop music video, as we think of it, really came of age during the 80s. And, um, and I began watching it, watching Rage and video hits. I don't know if you guys were avid video hits and Rage watchers like I was. Um, I mourned the death of video hits. It was just a disaster. That whole idea of the silhouetted figure in, um, in music video was so huge around then. And you had it in, say, CNC Music Factory. But it was really, really big in Australian pop videos in the early 90s. I don't know if anyone remembers Euphoria. They were a pop group. I, I wanted to have some of these early 90s clips, but I almost felt as though there was too much um, charm attached to the retro quality that they have now. But um, why I chose Tina Arena is it's just it's so embarrassing still. Like there's, It doesn't even have the cool factor that a lot of that 90s stuff has now for a younger generation. I mean, uh, even her outfit is weird and, and too old for her. It's Who dressed her? Um, <laughs> But the thing is that this was meant to be Tina Arena's, you know, emergence as an adult performer. She'd been on Young Talent Time. Everyone knew her as Tiny Tina. And then this was meant to be her being adult and sexy. And, uh, and the, there was this massive joke that went around the boobs um, being really big, but they weren't even that big. Um, you'll see some of the jokes that people were saying because there's uh, a parody that um, Gina Riley did on Fast Forward around that time. So <laughs> So you can see they're taking the piss out of both the, the silhouette thing and, and the boobs thing. And it's hilarious because her boobs, Gina's boobs, are, are much bigger than Tina's. Um, the, uh, the idea of a, ch a child star or a faded star trying to reinvent themselves through music video is actually very poignant in Australia. I mean, people do it all the time. Look at Madonna, look at Kylie. They've, they've had chances to give themselves makeovers in their images and they've used their um, music videos to prosecute those new images. 
but in Australia, we will never, ever let people forget what they were once like. And so that's why it's just so embarrassing when they try and do this reinvention. It just doesn't work. Now, who here remembers Melissa Couts? Um, in the early 90s, uh, her album Fresh, and I owned that album. I bought it at Brashes. Um, I'm, I'm revealing my age here, aren't I? Um, <laughs> um, was huge. It had hits like Read My Lips, Sexy is the Word, um, Skin to Skin was the third single. And then she just kind of she just kind of vanished into really bad soap operas. So she had her acting career. Uh, and then in 2005, she tried to make a comeback with uh, a... Uh, it was a cover of um, The Glamorous Life by Sheila E, which was a, a song written by Prince. Uh, for one of his protégés, uh, and she did a cover. Unfortunately, it hit the charts at around the same time as a much better cover version by Inaya Day, who had that, that big, ballsy, diva voice, whereas Melissa Couts's voice can kindly be described as light. Um, <laughs> but the worst thing for me was the video, which I remember watching on video hits on a Sunday morning and just putting my head in my hands at how embarrassing it was. You can tell that it's meant to be an event video. Uh, Kylie Minogue had done that video for Come Into My World, which was a one-take video on the streets of London where she looped around and around and different things happened and different Kylies piled up in this wonderful Kylie lasagna. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, Melissa Couts uh, did not make a lasagna. She just did this kind of a walkthrough of this mansion um, I think for me the thing that stood out most was the crispy, crispy hair. And then after that was the, the kind of weird flat affect that she's doing. It's like she's got this idea of, of being cool, being insouciant, and yet it comes across as weird and robotic. And, uh, and that terrible scene where those guys who you can just tell would not ever really be into her and women at all. Um, she, she's doing this terrible dance and... and the, the moment where she yeah. grips one of them in that vice-like grip is just... It's terrifying. And, and you, I don't want to lead that glamorous life. It's, it's just really, really bad. But I think that the choreography is maybe a good point to lead through to my next video because basically... I don't know if it's because Australia is a smaller country with a smaller talent pool than, say, the US or the UK, but we've always had this real problem with choreography in, in our videos. And, I mean, it's so hard, because I'm not a dancer, I'm not a choreographer. Who am I to be saying, you know, it's... Like, I, I can't come up with anything really better, but all I can do is go, there's just something wrong and not good about that. Like, you know, did you get that vibe when you saw those dudes doing that, that dance? Anyway, so uh, I, I now want to show you a, a clip from Fireman by Paulini, um, which came out in, uh, in February last year, and that has some of the most lulsome choreography you will ever see. I've chosen, I think, the part with the bobbing. You have to... The bobbing is my favourite part. But also, bear in mind as you're watching this clip that this was tailor-made for the gay club market. OK. Now, when that came out, Paulini said, I'm a strong woman and I know who I am as a person and as an artist. This track is sexy, it's fun, and I love it. And I think that maybe the, the song itself, while a little bit disappointing, because Paulini's got a tremendous voice, why does she need to auto-tune the hell out of it? Um, but apart from that, the actual song is not so bad. I think it's the scope of the video that's so impoverished 
that makes it embarrassing. The way that she's obviously can't really dance very much in that very, very tight dress and the high heels. So she's rooted to the spot while those topless firemen gyrate around her. And miss the beat. Yes. Yeah. Like, one more take, guys. One and more the, chicken, the chicken. Yeah, yeah. The chicken tonight. <laughs> But it's the bobbing that slays me, honestly. And there's a, there's a video, I, I should have shot it, but they performed it on one of those breakfast shows. She and two of the firemen. And she did the bobbing dance on, like, you know, the Today Show or something like that, or mornings. And, and that's why I think it's hilarious, because it's a performance. It's not like... Uh, they're like, this is what the song suits, this is what we're going to do. It's like, this is what we feel as though we need to do because it's a pop song. There are these beats that we feel like we have to not quite hit. Um, (laughs) But what I want to say as well is that Paulini is one of a group of recent Australian pop stars who basically are what I call the shadow of Beyonce. It It falls long and dark over Australian pop music because... Um, the talent quest phenomenon has brought so many new um, artists into mainstream Australian pop. Uh, and so that's where Paulini came from, that's where uh, Ricky Lee came from, um, and that's where Jessica Malboy, I keep saying it wrong, uh, that's where Jess came from as well. So basically, <laughs> Australia is always looking for its next Beyonce. We're never going to find her because Beyonce trained since she was a very small infant to do what she does. <laughs> and, and while you can have a really great voice, Beyonce is not just a triple threat, she's, just, she's many different threats. She's, um, <laughs> she's got access to the best quality choreographers and producers and directors that any pop star can. She's able to be really, really creative and she's allowed to because she's created this niche for herself where she's Beyonce. She's almost larger than, than any other pop star can be. And so it's, it's embarrassing that, that there's this sub-Beyonce thing going on. <laughs> I mean, and um, Paulini's got a tremendous voice. Ricky Lee's got a great voice too. Now, um, I, I want to show you a bit of Ricky Lee's song, Can't Touch It, from 2007. It also features a cameo appearance, not by Colin Farrell. You would think it was maybe, or maybe Enrique Iglesias, some dude wearing one of those floppy, sad beanies. No, it's actually our former Australian Idol contestant, Dan O'Connor. <laughs> Um, who acts as the bartender slash Ricky Lee's love interest. Now, this was filmed in Lotus Bar in uh, South Yarra, so it's a local video. Um, (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) So that's bad. We can have great videos filmed in Melbourne. I mean, just look at Akadaka's long way to the top. But... um, um, and yet, it, that falls into that genre of the club scene. And I was just at karaoke on the weekend, and uh, one of the songs that someone chose was Inda Club by 50 Cent. And uh, that's actually a fascinating video because it shows the club scene as a controlled environment in which this organism, 50 Cent, or this, this kind of cyborg, is being let loose, observed from the outside by Dr. Dre and uh, Eminem. And that's what I find really fascinating about that video is that it understands that the club scene is itself a genre within music video and they're, they're subverting that. I mean, then there are weird montage scenes in that video as well. But in Can't Touch It, it's played absolutely straight. It's like her, you know, getting in the club at 11 o'clock and even the, the, the beats that the song hits are embarrassing. You know, seven jeans and a Prada bag with her six-inch heels. How are you liking that, you know? And she was twerking it 
out. Did you did you hear that? And also, do you remember um, just from a few minutes ago how poor old Jess was doing the most lame attempt at a twerk, at, you know, the sideways twerk that she was doing in the Get 'Em Girls video. Um, it's like we know that these are things that we have to do in in music videos, but there's no way that we can put our stamp on them. Instead, it's as if Australian mainstream pop has given up on doing anything really unique and instead we're leaving that stuff to the indie scene and we're letting the, uh, the young directors and the interesting fashion designers have a go. And if you actually want to go overseas, because that's the other big trope about Australia, you have to go overseas to get the good people involved. That's what makes Get 'Em Girl such a massive tragedy because she got Snoop Dogg involved, she got Hype Williams involved and the result was still disastrous. Um, the critics hated it, the, um, her fans thought it was too slutty, you know, she just really could not win. Um, with that, that whole thing. But we've got this thing that in Australia we can't do it here with our own resources. We, we need to go overseas. Does anyone remember when human nature decided that they needed to become a boy band and so they went over to Scandinavia and did that kind of let's all wear white and uh, we'll stand on glass and be filmed from underneath, like that kind of music video. It's a tremendous song. He, um, he Don't Love You, I think, was the... He don't love you, no. That, um, <laughs> tremendous. Um, but the other thing I was thinking when I was watching uh, Can't Touch It is that it reminded me inescapably of a Beyonce video. And I was thinking, which Beyonce video? At first I was thinking it might be um, Check On It, which is also a Hype Williams video. Um, but that's way too stylized. Um, if you remember Check On It, that's the one where Beyonce's performing in front of these billowing sheets of pink satin. And she and her little... Um, group of backing dancers have got beautifully executed moves going on, which is clearly not what Ricky Lee and her backing dancers have got. <laughs> um, and then I was thinking, um, maybe it was that one, oh, what's it called, Get Me Bodied, where she and her, her friends all hit the club and then they do that kind of amazing Bob Fosse style. Oh, no, wait, Bob Fosse style, that's not like Ricky Lee. And, and then it hit me, it was Baby Boy, which was quite an early song of hers. That's the one that's got um, Sean Paul in it as well. It's quite a minor Beyonce video, but what I find fascinating is that even this very minor Beyonce video is still so much better than anything we can produce here. So, Okay, so that's directed by Jake Nava, who's collaborated with Beyonce on lots of different videos. He did Crazy in Love, which pr um, produced, I think, still one of my favourite Beyonce moments, which is when Jay-Z's doing the rap and she smacks him with her foxtail. I just think that's <laughs> the most badass moment. Anyway, um, like and it, it coincides... I like the sexy trip, where she just, like... <laughs> like trips over her heels and lands on her face, but it's sexy. It's sexy, sexy yeah. Uh, and he also did the single ladies video, which, as Kanye likes to remind us, is the greatest video yeah. of all time. I'm going to let you finish. Yeah. Of all time. Um, <laughs> but this, this is actually one of his comparatively minor works, but what I still like about it is that there's an abstraction to it that I think is missing in a lot of... Um, of Australian pop music that takes itself very, very literally. We're in the club, look, here's me with my girlfriends, we're doing a dance. But they take Beyonce right out of the club environment. She and her dancers are on some weird volcanic beach now. <laughs> um, and then there are just shots of Beyonce belly rolling and close-ups of her body. And, and those shots at the end where she's kind of looking like she's having an orgasm to images of herself. Um, <laughs> 
even though the song's about the baby boy, but what I've always loved about that video is the fantasy element of it is so beautifully done. The way that she's having this fantasy about dancing in the cellar um, and then the music, the water actually comes in and splashes, you know, as she's the dance floor becomes the sea. I just, I love that it's literal, but it's literal in, in a, a lovely way. And even the way that the light is sort of swinging around in, in that way that when you're drunk, you know, and, and you're in the club and things look amazing to you, that's, that's what he somehow managed to capture in that video, which I think is amazing. And I don't know why we can't do that. Maybe we can have a discussion about that. But it seems as though we're just, we're caught up with what we think we ought to be doing that we, we haven't really developed our own vernacular when it comes to, and I'm talking about very mainstream pop here, and that's why our girls are bad. <laughs> Thank you. That's, you're excused. <laughs> Work um, lady. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thank you, ladies. That was really enjoyable because I can watch music videos all day long. In fact, that's what I tried to do for many years. Um, uh, we've probably got about ten, five, ten minutes for questions. Does anyone have anything pressing that they want to ask the ladies up here? Don't be shy there with the red hair. Um, how much responsibility would you give? I don't think my how much responsibility would you give to like, Miley Cyrus or artists like for their music videos and their art? Because if you're claiming a cultural appreciation, she's a songwriter. Actually, quite quite a bit because it was her that went to Rock City mm -hmm. and said, "I want a black sound. I will then choose the songs that I want that you will provide." She did actually have quite a lot of power in selecting who was going to produce her album, the aesthetic that she was looking for. I mean, like it's it's almost disingenuous to sort of suggest that twerking was something that was forced upon her. No, or No, no, no. But, you know, I know what you mean, but it's, it's something that she is obviously really enjoying and her appropriation of the culture is something that she's thinking of as a larger branding strategy. Are there people um, agreeing with her? Obviously, because they see it as a fairly canny way to get a lot of attention because it's also... The interesting thing about this is that it's not only an edgy move for her, it's a shocking move for others and that's kind of, you know, part of the double threat when it comes to getting media attention. I guess like, what I'm meaning though is like we're living in an age of manufactured art, mm -hmm. manufactured pop, sorry, manufactured art. Mm -hmm. So um, where, I mean it's really common, I mean even in their Beyonce video they don't put the cultural appropriation and mm -hmm. belly dancing and all that stuff, like it's, um, you're chucking in all these different artists and purely commercially driven music mm -hmm. and art and if that's Miley never started off as being chucked from the street, though. Miley started no, out from a. I meant like found in a shopping mall. But, yeah, I, but that's but that's the yeah, thing. Miley's so she's she's already started out from a position of power, mm -hmm. from a position of immense cultural clout, a well-developed audience already, and also funds. So mm -hmm. if she even wanted to self-fund this herself. She possibly you know could have to a degree. I, I think that, yes, there is an age where such things can be manufactured. And when you look at the, um, you know, the travel of boy bands, that's something that's actually really developed along you know, taking an African-American R&B kind of sound. But in the case of someone like Miley, 
her profile was already so pronounced that I do believe that it's an already autonomous decision. It's just that it's an autonomous decision that is commercially viable. I think it's, it's strategic too, as mm. though she's trying to emerge as a woman and mm. she's going through the, you know, the, the young slut phase... Well, they, and they have that. It's a, that's a really well-worn path, especially for the Disney Disney set. So Jessica Biel got kicked off 7-7 for trying to appear in Playboy. Uh, Christina went through her ex-Tina phase. Um, they all go through that phase, and it's a very deliberate, I'm no longer virginal, I'm no longer what you think about taking sexually, I'm going to present myself as a mature, edgy adult... And part of that is by using the, one of the, you know, immediate commodities that are available to women, which is sexuality. Now, she's combined that sexuality, interestingly enough, um, and she's sort of amplified it, not by co-opting Caucasian sexuality, which is a very passive sexuality. She's actually co-opted African-American sexuality. And this is another area of, of sexism and, um, you know, oppression and stereotypical behaviours because it's considered that African-American sexuality, particularly from women, is more exotic, it's more powerful. And so, therefore, she's actually trying to amplify her progression into an adult, sexual, physically mature star by co-opting that. I think there's kind of two, like, two well-worn narratives at work, and one of them is the child star Mm -hmm. shedding that that thing of their past, which is the tiny Tina to Tina Arena transition to, which is inevitably, in my opinion, really shit. It's really clumsy. It's really cringeworthy and weird. And I think all that... Even forget about the most recent Miley clips, those ones before where she's frolicking, like, frolicking on a bed in, like, bad mm. synthetic lingerie. No offence. Like um, you know, it's, 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 like, it's, it's so bad on all these levels and... Well, I guess it's, it's in a way, a bit grosser, the, the youth, uh, you know, the Lolita quality mm. that she was selling before is gross in another way. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that there's a trouble with appropriating black sexuality because, number one, there's this hoe idea mm. that black sexuality mm. is always for sale. Mm. Um, and there's also the idea that, um, yeah, like you were saying, you can walk away, like you can twerk in the club, mm. but you don't have to deal with any of the like consequences of being thought to be constantly sexually available yeah. in, in a black way, which is different to being constantly sexually thought to be available in a, a white way. It, yeah, there is a, there's a whole different, um, different level of entitlement, physical entitlement, that gets placed upon African-American women as opposed to Caucasian women, and it's... Absolutely horrendous. Sorry. I don't know if this has answered your question at all. <laughs> the back there, yep. Um, I just want to quickly go back to Jessica Malboy's um, very brief twerking yes. in that music video. Um, is, does it become okay? I mean, is it okay for her to culturally appropriate considering she's given, she's an Indigenous Australian? And then, as a second question, is she, um, is that then? 
What's fascinating in the way that in Australia, anyone who looks vaguely dark-skinned is allowed to, to be the substitute African-American. Um, like Paulini gets to be black as well. I mean, and it's fascinating, you know the, the group Young Divas that a bunch of all those alumni of Australian <laughs> Idol were in. And the only one who looked at all white bread was Kate DeRouge, bless her soul. Um, but the others were all that kind of, it reminded me as well of the second season of Channel 7's Pop Stars back in the 90s where they produced that, that R&B group called Scandal Us. <laughs> and they were all like, they looked, you know, Mediterranean, you know, Middle Eastern, vaguely dark-skinned. And I don't think that in Australia we do think through the specifics of, of how your actual ethnicity interacts with that. Um, I thought that the sapphires was more nuanced about um, indigeneity and the interaction of that with, um, with African-American culture than her career is per se. I, I don't, can't remember if... No, I can't remember if Get Em Girls was at all associated with the Sapphires, but um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that there's much of a, there's much thinking through of, of that. Um, I'm aware that Amy's got another appointment to run to, so we might wind up there, um, but I'm sure like people will want to come and grab Mel and talk endlessly about bad 90s Australian music videos. I know, I do. Um, Jim's created a playlist so we could just twerk the night away. Yeah, yeah. Please do. Um, I, can everyone give the ladies a round of applause? You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.